but you know, uh, as we look at this text in Hebrews 13, that's where we are today. Yay, chapter 13. <laughs> you know, only two more months and we'll get through this. You know? No, I'm joking. No, we, we are in chapter 13. And um, we're looking at the first six verses. And just a quick reminder that Hebrews has five warnings. It's a, written to a group of people that were struggling. They were being persecuted uh, from the Romans. They were persecuted from Jewish uh, people who had not come to Christ. And so it was a little faith community made up of people that were all in who had been regenerate in their heart. The Holy Spirit had come in. And they were wanting to go back. They were... They were fearful of the persecution. They were struggling. But they were believers. They were all in. But this letter primarily was written to them. But there was a second group where the warnings primarily were written to. And the second group were people that had intellectually bought into Jesus. They might have even had left temple worship, but now they were going back and conflating temple worship with Jesus. And some of them may have just been posers. They just believed that if they had the intellectual knowledge about Jesus and they hung around people that were really all in, that they were all in, but they weren't. They'd never been regenerate. And then there was a third group still trying to figure it out. Five warnings, chapter one or chapter two is the first warning. It says, don't drift from the message. Don't neglect the message. And what is the message? The message is Jesus is supreme. He is the bridge to God. He is the only thing we need. And He's supreme to Moses, Abraham, Joshua, the high priest. He is the highest priest. And Jesus is supreme. So don't drift from that message. Chapter 3, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart against God. Which basically is unbelief. If you go back to Exodus, I think it's in Exodus 17, the children of Israel, they harden their heart by saying, does God really care? Is He really with us? And that's what it was. And every time Israel went down that direction, they would go to the Asherah. They would go to the Baals. They would go to the other gods, the Molechs, the other gods of the people in the land that they went in to conquer. And they would, just to be safe, they would also worship those gods and pray to them. And I think we do a lot of that too. We talk about God. We give lip service to faith in God, but, but really when it comes down to it, oh, we're not worshiping a, a wooden or a silver or a gold idol. Our idol has maybe Ben Franklin's picture on it. Or it may be something else that we think, if we just have enough of this, it'll take care of us. That's our idol. Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's our family. Whatever it is that replaces God is the ultimate thing that we are supposed to be connected to. Because God, ultimately we come into the world with this God-shaped vacuum in our heart that can only be filled by true devotion to the one true living God. And so he says, you know, don't harden your heart. And then in uh, chapter 5 and 6, he gives a third warning. He says, don't drift. Don't keep going back and forth. I mean, don't waver between your tradition and Jesus. Don't try to conflate them. You keep wavering back and forth. Don't do that. By now you should be teachers of God's Word, but you're not. 
even though you've received it. So he warns him. He says, don't waver back and forth. And then chapter 10, he gives a fourth warning. He says, don't be an apostate. Don't receive the knowledge and reject it, either overtly or covertly. He says, don't reject, don't become an apostate. And then chapter 12, we saw last week, the fifth warning was don't reject Jesus. He just comes out and says, don't reject him. Don't do it. Don't reject him. One final plea. Well, what's interesting to me is we looked at this race theme in chapter 12. And if you remember, we saw that we got a race according to God's plan, according to his purpose and his pattern. And last week, when we were looking at uh, the middle part of chapter 12, we were looking at the the difference between uh, the two races, racing a race of performance versus a race of faith. Racing one performance to Mount Sinai, racing the race of faith to where? Mount Zion. Now the word Zion in Hebrew, you know what it means? It means mark. Like mark. Like you're a mark of somebody. You represent something. It's a mark. Like I put a mark on a paper to to identify And so, Zion, that's what it means. And it was always associated with God's favor, His mercy, His blessing. We saw last week that that, there are two races that we could have run, the faith race or the performance race. There were two responses we have to the, the message of God to us that Jesus is supreme. We either reject it or we receive it. And then there's two results. We saw we either get an inheritance that can't be shaken for which we should be grateful and worship or we get judged. And that's how he ended chapter 12. Our God is a consuming fire. That's a judgment picture. That's what he's talking about there. Well, then he goes into chapter 13. And in chapter 13, here's the deal. Chapter 1 through 12 is what we believe, really. It's foundational. It's theology. Chapter 13 is really what others see. It's practical application. So one lays a foundation, one puts it on display. One uh, is really about revelation. The other is, is that response to the revelation, how it, it, it put, plays out to other people as we are running the faith race. Remember, the Christian life is a faith race. And last week, we, I, I read you the quote by Tozier that says, the most important thing about us is what we believe about God. Remember, he said that it's better to not believe in God at all than to believe wrongly about God. Well, what we think about God has everything to do with our relationship to each other. You get that? What we believe about God has everything to do with how we treat one another here on earth. If we really believe what God says in His Word, then then it's going to impact the way we interact with each other. And that's what he's getting to in chapter 13. In fact, think about the Ten Commandments for a second. The first four are vertical, right? First one is, you don't have any other gods. You keep my name holy. You know, you keep the Sabbath. You don't take my name in vain. Those four are the vertical components of God's moral law to us. But then, 
Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten deal with the horizontal. What's the first one? Honor your mother and your father. Second one, after that, the second of the six, yeah, murder, which Jesus said is what? Hey, Jake. It's, it's hating. You guys ever hate anybody? I've heard more hate-filled speech in the last three weeks than I've heard in a long time from believers. Yeah. So what's the next one? Um, let's see. So we got honor our parents. You don't murder. Oh, don't commit adultery, right? Jesus said it's like if you look at a woman in lust, you, you break that one. These are all horizontal. So the first four deal with God. The next six deal with people ending up with coveting. Your neighbor's wife, whatever he's got that you don't have. And a proper grasp of God guides our footsteps as we deal with each other in our day-to-day life. Doctrine leads to duty. Whatever our doctrine is, that's going to be the way we put God on display. If our doctrine's bad, we're not going to represent Him very well in our faith race. So our faith is grounded vertically by our love for God and horizontally by the way we display God to the people around us. Matthew 5.16 says this. It says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Nobody lights a lamp and then hides it. It has to be for people to see. For people who are outside of God's family to be able to see us and say, why are you different? I want what you have, like we talked about earlier. So, in this text today, we see 1-6... through God basically shows that our love for God and others is seen in four things in verses 1 through 6. First of all, in our love for man. And he, he gives us three examples brotherly love, stranger love, and love for the hurting. And that's in verses 1 through 3. But he also shows us that our love for God and others is seen in our loyalty to our mate. That's part of that horizontal relationship. And it's a very unique, special horizontal representation of our our love for God. So love for man, loyalty to our mate, but also it's seen in our longing for our maker. And what I mean by that is, if you, have you ever really longed for something? If you long for something, it means that's your, your desire. You really want it. And if you really long for a relationship with God the Creator, that's, that's going to be, that, that is the greatest need we all have. So if that's your greatest longing, guess what? When you are tempted to be greedy, Instead of honor God, you're not going to do that. When you're tempted to compromise your ethics, you're not going to do that for the love of money. And he talks about that down in verse 5. But then finally, in the last part, he says, we have our love for God is also seen in our hope. Our hope in our Master. 
our hope in our master. And he, he quotes from Psalm 118, which was a messianic psalm, and Isaiah down there. And he basically says, we don't have to fear anything because we have Jesus. Now, again, belief impacts life. True belief, whatever we believe. Not what we say we believe, but I mean what we really believe. And that's what he's bringing out here. These things, what others see in our life as we run our faith race, is based on what we believe, not what we say we believe. And I think that's really important for us to understand as we look at this. So let's read the text. It's not that long. And then we're going to come back and unpack each one. Okay? Starting in verse 1, he says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who were in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who were mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? May God bless His Word. Revelation, guys, leads to responsibility. When we get God's truth poured into us and we believe it, there's a responsibility attached to it as we run the faith race so that those around us see what we do as different. God's always... He chose His people. And next week, um, you're going to hear, God chose His people to uniquely show Himself to the world so that when people see His people, they go, wow, they're different. And so, it's seen, first of all, He says, and by the way, these are imperatives. That means commands, which means they're not optional for us as His kids. Now, if you're not a believer, then you're, you know, it's, you're still going to be judged by it. But if you are not a believer, I don't expect you to, to follow Him. Because you're not His. But if you're His, these are not optional. And so it says, first of all, let brotherly love continue. Verse 1, love for man. Brothers, Philadelphos. Phileo Delphi. That's the city of, Phil, city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's the word that comes from that. It's the Greek word phileo, which is brotherly, is the brotherly love type of love. And delphos is brother. Love for brothers. Why would he tell them that? Why would he write that to these Hebrew people as they're going through persecution? What happens when we get under stress? We tend to lash out. And most of the time, we lash out at those closest to us. And it happens a lot. You see people undergo stress and they start to bicker and they start to fight. And all of a sudden, they split. And John 13, 35 says this, they will know us by our what? Our love. Our love for one another. 
<coughs> they will know us by our love. So if we're not being very loving, what is the world around us going to see as we're running our faith race? Yeah, those, those people don't look like they're running to Zion to where there's hope. Paul, when he wrote First Thessalonians, he wrote to the Thessalonian church, he said this, and I, I find this really instructive for us. A lot of times we think, well, I just wish somebody would tell me what to do. You know, I wish you could, you know, I, I, I mean, I want to spend more time so you can help me learn what to do. Listen to what Paul says to the Thessalonian church. Chapter 4, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love. What are we talking about? Brotherly love. So here it is, right here in Scripture. Now concerning brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul's writing them and he's saying, listen, you don't need instruction on brotherly love. Who teaches us about that? The Holy Spirit. When God comes into somebody's heart, our brother Dawa over in India... When God transformed his heart, he was a fighter. He wanted to fight everybody every day. He was a drunk and a fighter. When God came into his heart, he didn't want to fight people no more. He didn't go through a class on anger management. The Holy Spirit changed that man from the inside out as he began to read God's Word, see what God's Word said. He wanted to apply that. And that's what he says, brothers. That's one of the first ways we show love for others is to our brothers. Do you know that really our loyalty within our world should be to brothers in the faith even above our own family if they're not believers? Do you know that? That's what Jesus demonstrated for us. Is that hard for us to do? Of course it is. Don't hear a lot of people teaching on it. Because that's uncomfortable. But that's what Jesus taught. Remember when they came? Jesus, your mother and brother and sister's out here. He goes, these are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters. The people that are running the faith race with me. Because at that point, his, his brothers and sisters weren't. They weren't doing that. He says, love for man is putting God on display for people. Second, he says, our love for God and others is seen in what? The second way our love for man is shown is through love for strangers. That word is philoxenos. Like, it's where we get xenophobic from. Fear of aliens. The word actually means like alien or stranger. Fear of strangers. Do you wonder what xenophobic is? I've heard people say, what does xenophobic mean? That's what it means. A fear of strangers or people not like us. And he says, Philo Xenos. Love strangers. Be hospitable. He says, He says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, this is interesting because he takes them back to Genesis 18. Genesis 18 has one of the greatest stories of hospitality in the whole Bible. 
Because in the Eastern culture, for you guys who've been to Israel, you may remember, it was shameful for an Eastern man to run. That was shameful for him to run. He didn't do that. Men over there don't run in their robes and, and their, what they wear. They just don't run. And back in Genesis 18, it's the story of Abraham. And there's three strangers. Two angels and a pre-incarnate Christ. And they come to Abraham. Abraham sees them a long way off. And guess what he does? He runs to them. He runs to them. Doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know who they are. He runs their strangers. He runs to them and says, Can I serve you? Can I help you? He brings them back and he runs to get supplies so that he can feed them. And you know what he feeds them? He, go, he gets three seahs uh, for Sarah, which is about 40 pounds of flour. Now, do you think that'll make bread for three guys? That's a lot of bread. Why do you think he got that much flour to make bread for just three guys? Because he didn't just get them bread for them. He got them bread to take with them. And if he got 40 pounds of flour, it probably diminished his stack of flour. But he didn't care. Because he cared about hospitality. I used to go to Russia a lot. The people there, if you came to their door, they would give you food and not eat for a day just to give you food because you were their guest. It's interesting to me that we don't do that. We rat hole our stuff away, and then if there's something left, we'll put it out for people most of the time. It's a very different mentality. But it's love for strangers. And now why is that important to us? For us to have love for outsiders, love for those that are not like us, love for the non-believers? Because non-believers are not going to trust us you know, with Christ until they trust that we love them and care about them. I mean, I mean, to go try to talk to an unbeliever about Christ without making a connection is they're not, they're not going to receive that. And, and, and so for us, what we want to do is we want to pray because God is the, the one who ultimately opens up people's eyes. Then we want to care for people and as we care, we build bridges to be able to communicate. And they see that we care about them. And they go, oh, this guy cares about me. He's not just selling me something. He's telling me this because he cares about me. They have to trust us. Non-believers are not going to trust Christ till they can trust us. You know, it's interesting in Exodus Leviticus, there are commands given to leave the four corners of your field uncut so that the stranger, the alien, the sojourners, the widow, and the poor, the orphan, can go through the field and actually pick up food. They never were allowed to cut their entire field. They left the corners, four corners of their field. It was commanded by God to do that because God cares for the strangers, the orphans, the widows, and the poor, and those who are the alien. Now think about our lives. Most of us don't have fields that we grow crops in. But we spend every bit of our money on ourselves without keeping money set aside to give away. we got to be hospitable to people. That puts God on display. And we do it 
Because we want to remember, he's saying, remember Abraham. You don't know if you're entertaining angels. I think he's just putting a carrot out there saying you might be entertaining angels. But he's taking them back to remind them Abraham ran to be hospitable. 1 Peter 4.9 says, be hospitable without grumbling. 1 Timothy and Titus both say that if you're going to be an elder and a leader in a church, you better be hospitable. That needs to be a character quality. Not how good of a businessman you are. Not how successful you are in the world, but be hospitable, gentle, able to teach. That's what he says. But then he says our love for God and others is seen not only in our love for brothers and our love for strangers, but a love for the hurting those that need compassion, those in prison, those who are suffering. And quite frankly, we live in a world, it's a a remote control world, where if we hear a story about somebody suffering, we like to switch the channel and go to another place because we don't like that. Especially as men, we don't like being sympathetic with people. I think of Paul. Remember in Colossians 4 where he's he's telling them, listen, remember I'm in prison. (laughs) Here I am in prison. Pray for me. Pray that a door would be open so I can share with these people. Remember my imprisonment. 2 Timothy 2, you know what he says? Come soon, Timothy. Bring me the parchments. You know, bring me my cloak, but especially the parchments. God's Word. Bring it, Timothy. I'm alone. Everybody's deserted me. Demas left me for the world. They all left. Luke, everybody, nobody's here with me. Do we feel sympathy and compassion for those that are suffering? Or do we not feel it unless it directly impacts us? Psychologists, one psychologist said, human beings are the only animals that can't survive by themselves. They must have love or they will die. We don't run this race alone. And nobody should have to run it alone. So many people are taking their own life. Depression has gone up. Suicides are up. And the church, the church is just so focused on other things that we've stopped caring about people. And I'm guilty too. To be honest with you, I've been more consumed with who's getting in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue than my neighbor down the street. And, and I, I just think, you know, as we think about what he's saying here, as we run our faith race, how are we impacting others for Christ? Am I running toward the finish line? Am I running purposeful? If you've ever watched anybody run a marathon or any kind of race for that matter, when you watch them, are those runners running with purpose? Are their eyes fixed toward the finish line? Yeah. They're not running thinking about something over on the side of the road most of the time. They're focused. And our Christian race has to be focused. And and he says our love for God and others seen as our love for man. Do we love man? But second, he says in verse 4, it's also our loyalty to our mate. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterous 
Moses, back in Genesis 2, said, For this cause, a man leaves his mother and father and is joined to his wife. They become one flesh. What Moses is saying to the people of Israel is, I want you to know where marriage comes from. It is not a social contract. It is not just an agreement with two dads that their kids get married. It is not even an agreement in our culture between two people who go, I love you and I love you. Marriage comes from God. Plain and simple. It is the base unit of displaying the faith community. It's a husband and wife who are the illustration of Christ in the church. Paul talks about it. But even in the Old Testament, before Paul, God, how did God talk about Israel? Yes. And when they went astray, they were adulterous. And so it was a constant example. So the marriage relationship is a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church, holding marriage in honor, holding it holy and undefiled. You see, love without Christ has no reference point at all. It's just, it's just the raw, primal urges and what you think is an emotion that's temporary. But real marriage based on Christ moves our faith from theory to practice. It actually puts God on display as an illustration in our own marriage. Because when you talk to people, let me tell you, the best witness that you have to people around you is your marriage. Right, Brian? If, if, if you want to go talk to people, listen, I realize there may be people in this room who maybe have gone through marital problems. Maybe you've been divorced. That doesn't exclude you from honoring this. But we live in a culture that has treated marriage like a social contract and not an institution from God. And this is a command. He says, let it be undefiled. Be holy. Be honoring. It's the best witness we have. 1 Thessalonians 4, and I've shared this before, says, and this is the will of God, our, our sanctification, our growth, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Because He wants you to be pure. And it says God is an avenger of all these things. When you mistreat His people, when you hurt those that are sexually trafficked, and this is a problem when you have 40% of leaders in the church who are addicted to pornography, it's a big problem. That's not honoring their marriage. That is not keeping the marriage bed undefiled. That is not being holy. And, and he's saying, listen, we have to have loyalty to our mate. That is a witness to the world of what God has called us to be. And Moses said back in Genesis, I want you to know where marriage comes from. It's from God. And I want you to honor it. Because that is the vertical being put on display in the horizontal when you love your wife. And listen, we all go through struggles. We all have difficult times in our marriage, but what did Christ do with the church? Did He have a difficult time with the church, Jake? Yeah, He did. Did He have a difficult time with the disciples? 
Do you know how many times he's hitting his head going, when are these knuckleheads going to get it? But he never quit on them. And I talked to too many guys that are willing to punt on their wives because their wives aren't making them happy. It's not about happiness. God gives you a wife and He wants you to be fulfilled with that wife. But guess what? You can't control that person. And you can only respond to what that person does. So God does not hold any of us responsible for what our wives do. But He does hold us responsible for how we respond to what they do. And He says, honor and and keep the marriage bed undefiled. Be loyal. We have to forgive. Well, yeah. We have to be... Well, that's what Christ did, isn't it? Didn't He say, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing? I'm sure there were believers out in that group. They may not have yet bowed their heart to Christ, but He said that. Well, not only is it seen in our love for man and our loyalty to our mate, but our love for God is seen in our longing for our Maker. Verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Longing for our Maker. It's a difference between being spiritually minded and materially minded. Back in Matthew 6.33, what did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things. I'll I'll take care of. You don't have to worry about your food. You don't have to worry about your clothes. In fact, what does it say over in 1 Timothy 6? If you've got food and clothes, you're good, right? I don't see anybody in this room really hurting according to that text. And he said in 1 Timothy 6 also that the love of money is the root of what? All All evil. The love of money is the root of evil. Now I want you to think back to 1 John 2, 15-17 where he says, do not love the world. The word love there in 1 John is agape. Don't love the world with this unconditional love where you're sold out to the world. And then he defines the world system. He's talking about the world system that time. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy things, but he's saying don't elevate the world over God. And, and he says, these are the things. The lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. What a man has and what he does. So I want you to think about it for a second. What he describes there is a greedy man, a lecherous man, and an arrogant man. Are those type of men repulsive or attractive? Is anybody in here attracted to a greedy man in any way, shape, or form? You want to do a business deal with a greedy man? You want to set up a business partnership, Tim, with a, with a greedy man? No. You don't want to do that. What about a lecherous man? Do, do, do you want to have an office with a lecherous man? Some dirty guy who is perverted from what God says this is the way we should be? These men are repulsive. They're, they're like an animal. They're primal. And that was Esau's sin. You remember Esau? 
Esau's sin was he was so primal that he sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge, basically. Why? Because he didn't long for his maker. When we long for our maker, uh, John Piper said it this way. He says, what's our chief end? To glorify God by what? By enjoying Him forever. That's right. He also said God is most glorified when we're most satisfied in Him. That's right. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Do we long for Him? Because if we're longing for Him, we're going to be spiritually minded. And when He says here, keep your life free from the love of money, listen, if somebody came up and offered you $10 million today, right now, to walk away from the faith, would you? If somebody gave you $10 million to walk away from your wife, would you? You see, those kind of things don't tempt me at all. I'm not tempted by that. I know ultimately that's nothing. It's going to go away. Now, I make mistakes every day for far less than $10 million. So it's not just the money. Satan knows how to push our buttons and what to push to make us, you know, not think spiritually and not long for our maker. But that's why we've got to be very careful not to be too tied into the world. Don't hold on too tight to your possessions. You hold on to your possessions like this with an open hand. Whether it's a house, car, whether it's a job, whether it's a family, whether it's a child, anything here, he says, I've got to be your primary relationship and your primary focus. We're running the race to finish the race. And then finally, in verse 6, he says, So we can say confidently, The Lord's my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hope in our Master. Why can we hope in our Master? Why can we hope in Jesus? He quotes from Psalm 118, by the way, which is a Messianic psalm, and from Isaiah 12. And what he's saying here is, we can say confidently that He's my helper and I don't fear because He's withheld nothing from us. Right? He laid down His life for us. Doesn't that warrant us to basically look to Him and say, hey, if He's not even holding on to His life, He'll do anything for us, right? You know, if, they, if, if you know somebody, Pete, that will lay down their life for you, that's, isn't that a kind of friend you want? Isn't that the kind of person you want to be there around you? And he's saying, listen, I, I love you. He loves us. Jesus loves us. He, we've already read about his blood. We've already read about his sacrifice. We've already read he's the high priest. And he's saying, you can put your hope on him because he's withheld nothing from you. Not even his life. Jesus loves us. He loves people around us. He loves our mates. He's spiritually minded and, he's, and He doesn't fear and He doesn't want us to fear. And it makes me think of guys like Hezekiah when the Assyrians were surrounding him and they're saying, you're going to drink your urine and eat your dung. Can you imagine an army surrounding you and telling you, hey, you're going to drink your own urine and you're going to eat your dung and we're going to kill you all. 
I mean, we read that a lot of times and we just read it like, wow, that was, that was bad. But we don't read it like, imagine being there on the wall hearing them say this. And the Assyrians were mighty. And knowing they'd done it to other people. Yes, they knew that. And what did Hezekiah do? He prayed. He prayed. Amen. He prayed. And he was told what? The Syrians are not going not gonna to have a victory over you. And he believed it. He believed. Second Kings, Elisha. Remember when Elisha and his servant was out there and they were surrounded? They were looking for him. And Elisha's confident. He could say with confidence, I'm not afraid. But not so his servant. He's running his faith race, but man, the servant's thinking performance here. He's going, there's no way we can get out of this. And Elisha says, hey, Dad, would you do me a favor? Would you show this guy how many people are with us here? And he opened his eyes, and there were angels everywhere. Everywhere. In the army of heaven. Angels' armies. Angels' armies. Hope in our Master. So, why is he saying this? Well, it starts, guys. It starts with the foundation, what we've covered in 1 through 12. Groups 2 and 3 were not there, they had not bought in. They, they had only intellectually knew about Christ, but they never really said, I want you to come in and take my heart. I don't want to just tip my hat to you, God. I don't just want to know about you. I want to know you and I'm willing to yield my life to you for you to change me. And the only thing that allows you to see the angels out there, the only thing that gives you the hope in Christ is for His Spirit to dwell in you. See, because God made you and me for a dependent relationship, but because of our selfishness and our self-ledness, it was broken, bringing a big, big divide between us and God. And because that divide, we go our own way. We really don't even give God the time of day. We, don't, we, we talk about Him, but we don't really believe in Him to where it impacts our life. And because of that, the Bible says we earn hell. We earn eternal separation. But in His love, He sent Jesus 2,000 years ago and says, He's coming to die for us for everything we've ever done wrong or would do wrong so that we can be in God's family and run a faith race for Him and put Him on display to the world. And be in a partnership with Him where we run this race, we love man, we, we are loyal to our wives, we long for God because ultimately that's why Jesus came, to make us connect with the Most High God, the one true living God. If you read through the Old Testament, the one thing Israel didn't get, at least the large majority of them was, all God wanted was for them to depend on Him. That was it. To trust Him. And they kept going to Asherah and going to Baal and going to Molech and going to all these other things instead of going to the one true living God and saying, God, the most precious words to God our Father is, I need you. You're the only one that can help me. You are the one true living God. With Jesus, we can, we can tell Him that and go into His presence and understand we're forgiven forever and He will put us in the faith race to put Him on display to other people. And they will see that hope and they'll say, why are you different? And they will see that we are a light.
when they're in darkness. And they go, oh, this is where I need to go. I need to be over by Chuck. Because in him there's something different. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Right now, Lord, if there's anybody in this room today that has never bowed their heart to you, I pray that today they would do that. They would invite you to take the proper role of leadership in their life, and they would run this race of faith trusting in you for the rest of their time here on earth. For those of us, Lord, who have done that and the enemy distracts us, I pray for clarity and purpose that we would look toward that finish line and we would not let the enemy distract us from running the race that you have set before us. That we would forget what lies behind and we would look forward to the prize of the homecoming with you. We would long for you. Let your peace rest on these men. Let us love our brothers. Let us love the strangers. Let us love the hurting. And let us be loyal husbands and men of God. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Amen.